Hello, I'm Geraldine Doog. Welcome to the 2011 Boyer Lectures here on ABC Radio National. Coming to you today from the Eugene Goosens Hall in the ABC building in Sydney, I'm delighted to say. This prestigious annual lecture series is named after Sir Richard Boyer, a former long-time chairman of the ABC, who was a passionate advocate for its independence and its educational role. Now, each year, the ABC board invites a prominent Australian to present a series of radio lectures expressing their thoughts on major social, scientific or political issues. We've had lecturers as diverse as Rupert Murdoch, Donald Horne, Bob Hawke, Peter Cosgrove, Eva Cox, Shirley Hazard and Dame Roma Mitchell. The Boyers are one of the world's great lecture series and they represent one of the highlights of our broadcast year. The Boyers are designed to stimulate our imagination and stir our emotions, plus inspire fresh cultural dialogue. And I feel sure that will be the case with this year's lecturer, renowned journalist and Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Geraldine Brooks. Geraldine's chosen to explore the idea of home with its geographical, emotional and spiritual resonances. She draws both on her upbringing in suburban Sydney in the 1960s and her years as a foreign correspondent and expatriate, as well as her thoughts about fiction and the challenges we face in relation to our physical home, the planet. Now for Geraldine, as you'll hear, home is much more than a street address or even a sense of belonging. It's also the inspiration for her storytelling. And storytelling is about our core values as a community, values she thinks Australia's underplaying in the current global climate. Yet she's also haunted, it's a strong verb, by the homes and places she's lived in, the catastrophes she's witnessed, both here and abroad. And she's haunted too by the moral challenges and responsibilities that our world presents to us. So in today's lecture, the first in a series of four, Geraldine Brooks will talk about her passion for the environment. So please welcome Geraldine Brooks as she presents the first Boyer Lecture for 2011 and the lecture is entitled Our Only Home. I began to write these words on the island of Martha's Vineyard, where I now live. It was a warm day in early July. Sunlight dappled the page, filtered through the leaves of an apple tree that was old before I was born. Not far away, but unaware of me, a muskrat browsed in the grasses by the brook. Red-winged blackbirds swooped across the water and a goldfinch, like a drop of distilled sunshine, darted through the glossy branches of an ilex. The muskrat, the birds and the holly tree are natives here. I am not. Only my dog, a liver and tan kelpie, is a fellow exotic. Ten years ago, I plucked him from a paddock in New South Wales and set him down in another hemisphere. He is insouciant about this, as befits his kind. 
He is the quintessential Aussie canine who begat the expression that'd kill a brown dog. So while his warm flanks twitch in a doggy doze, it falls to me to reflect on what it means to live so far from our home place. So far, indeed, that the cold winds of July have been replaced by this soft and buttery summer air. I cannot explain to my Kelpie that the Indo-European root of that word home is haunt, nor can I explain to him how and why it is that I am haunted by absence and distance, by dissonance and difference, even if the alien corn that we will eat for dinner tonight is a sweeter variety than the starchy cobs of my Aussie childhood. Nothing is as sweet in the end as country and parents ever, even if far away you live in a fertile place. Odysseus said that, or rather Homer did. I know next to nothing about Homer, who he was, how he lived, yet I feel he knows my heart. Separated by 3,000 years, by gender and culture and geographic space, this ancient shadow is able to put words to the feelings that I have on a sunny day on a little island as I think of the larger island that is my native home, that sits like Ithaca, low and away, the farthest out to sea, where the ribs of warm sandstone push up through thin eucalyptus-scented soils. Home, haunt. I sit in my garden and look across to the house that I have now, a house whose first beams were cut and shaped a century before the white history of Australia even began. When I run my hand over that rough textured oak, I imagine the hand that planed it, the hand of a gristmiller, himself an exotic transplant, the second or third in a line of English settlers who had come to this place, drawn by the power of rushing water. If any home is haunted, this one should be. In 1665, the very first miller, Benjamin Church, bought this land from the native people of the place, the Wampanoag. Church dammed the wild brook the Wampanoag called the Tiascum, and set his grindstones turning. In so doing, he destroyed the herring run that had fed the Wampanoag each spring, when the fish known as the silver of the ocean poured upstream to spawn. Benjamin Church dammed the brook. It's just one sentence in a long story, the story of human alteration in the natural world. It happened on the Tiascum Brook in Martha's Vineyard, as it happened in uncounted places, as it happens now in the Amazon, in Africa, in Western Australia, Tasmania, the Alaskan Arctic, and innumerable corners of the world. A choice, a change, and the planet 
that is our only home reels and buckles under the accumulated strain. Often this story has also compass stories of dispossession, in which the needs of the newcomers and their industry disrupted the imperatives of the native people. As Benjamin Church built his mill in 1665, an English neighbour fenced pasture for his imported livestock, and the Wampanoag were no longer free to hunt the deer and waterfowl that sustained them. Another settler set his hard-hoofed beasts loose to trample the clam beds, and a band of Wampanoag went hungry that night. War followed, as war always has followed such acts of dispossession. In 1675, the Wampanoag on the mainland rose up against the English colonists. Benjamin Church, Grist Miller no longer, became a captain in the English army. His principal foe was the Wampanoag leader, Medicom. For six months, Medicom had the English colonists on the run, destroying a dozen settlements. The colonial enterprise in New England teetered. It was Church the former Miller, who devised a way to turn the tide of battle. He enlisted Indians at odds with Medicum to teach the English their guerrilla tactics. On a humid summer day in 1676, Church led the force that trapped Medicum and shot him dead. Church regarded Medicum's dead body and declared him a doleful, great, naked Dirty beast. He ordered the corpse drawn and quartered and had the quarters hung from four trees. Church kept the head, which he sold in Plymouth, at a day of thanksgiving for 30 shillings. It was placed on a tall pole to overlook the feast. Everyone knows the story of the first Plymouth Thanksgiving in 1621. Medicum's father, Massasoit, attended that one, offering help and friendship to the hapless, half-starved English Puritans. Few know the story of the Plymouth Thanksgiving of 1676, presided over by Massasoit's son's decapitated, rotting head. We like that earlier story much better. Let's not do black armband history. Pass the turkey. Let's we forget but I can't forget. Though Benjamin Church's mill was torn down, this land bears his imprint. The Tayaskum Brook remains dammed, the herring absent, and the grindstone is still here, set as a doorstep at the entrance to my house. Two metres in diameter, almost half a metre thick. When my foot lands on its notched ridges, Words from Jared Manley Hopkins' poem echo in my head. Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. Benjamin Church's mill was built a hundred years before the Industrial Revolution that so dismayed Hopkins, but it industrialized this landscape. And now I live where he lived, in an American home on Indian land, haunted by ghosts who lived and died 
unaware that my land, my home place, even existed. I did not mean to become part of this story, to know so intimately all this history so very far removed and yet so sadly similar to our own. Medicom has much in common, after all, with Pemelway in Sydney, or Jägen in Perth, guerrilla resistors whose heads also ended up on display, Pemelway's pickled in spirits, and Jägen sh shrunken and smoked. But that's black armband history too. And as a schoolgirl in 1960s Sydney, I did not learn it. In those days, I could not have told you that the home I lived in stood upon Eora land, as does this hall in which we meet today. And I acknowledge the traditional owners of this place and the continuing contribution of their descendants to the culture from which I am an accidental exile, a reluctant expatriate. I'm not part of that earlier Australian generation who set off on a deliberate search for fame and fortune in distant lands. My generation was probably the first that didn't need to. By the 1980s, when I left home, our culture had grown deep and wide enough to encompass all but the most rarefied of ambitions. I meant to leave Australia for just a year, a standard student adventure. But way leads on to way. Like Odysseus, I went to war, although as a writer, not a warrior. And then I found my homeward journey diverted by quests and siren songs. What was to have been my brief foreign fling has become, by unplanned stages, my life. In dictionaries, definitions of home are various. It is both a place of origin, a starting position, and a goal or destination. It may also be an environment offering security and happiness, or the place where something is discovered, founded, developed, or promoted, a source. In these lectures, I will examine each of these definitions. I will revisit my place of origin, an ordinary Australian suburban childhood of the 60s. I will ponder the way it led to a goal or destination, a career as a foreign correspondent and then as a novelist. Today, I want to discuss how my home in Australia was a place of discovery and a source of conviction about our responsibility to our only home this fragile and beleaguered planet. I've said that I live now on the banks of a little river that was dammed in 1665. When I first left Australia in 1982, a greater river, a larger dam, was very much on my mind. That river was the Franklin in southwest Tasmania, a river wild from source to mouth, already a precious rarity in the smeared, bleared, post-industrial world. Yet a river whose wildness was in clear and present danger. Works were already proceeding for a dam that would flood a pristine wilderness to yield just 180 megawatts of power. 
The last thing I did before I left the country was to hole up in Bob Brown's cottage in Liffey. Typewriter on knee, I helped him edit mounds of handwritten notes and shape them into the text for his book, Wild Rivers. We had little time. Bob was needed everywhere then as the spearhead for a movement that encompassed political lobbying, legal maneuvering, advertising campaigns, and the largest nonviolent direct action Australia had seen. So we worked late by candlelight and firelight in that little off-the-grid cottage. Bob had decided, not long before, that he couldn't stay hooked up to electricity provided by the drowning of that already lost gem, Lake Pedder. I'd started covering the Franklin controversy as a journalist in 1980. Somewhere along the line, not too far along the line, I have to confess, I did the thing that journalists are not supposed to do. I became an activist. The river itself had turned me into one. In February of 1981, I rafted part of its length on assignment for the Sydney Morning Herald, following Don Chip, leader of the Australian Democrats. That river journey was, at the time, the hardest and scariest thing I'd ever done. I was not what you would call an outdoorsy type. To paraphrase Woody Allen, I was two with nature. Until I started covering environmental issues for the Herald, I'd never gone bushwalking or slept one night in a tent, much less steered my own small rubber raft over heaving white water. That first night on the river, having carried gear all day up and down a sheer, slippery, rain-lashed mountainside, I lay wet, aching and apprehensive, wondering what mad ambition had led me to sign up for this The rains came down as only rains borne by the roaring forties know how to fall. Sometime in the middle of that long night, a plaintive male voice emanated from the nearby tent, which Senator Chip shared with his wife, Idun. Jesus Christ, darling! Don't wake me up to tell me you're uncomfortable! My misery, it seemed, had some distinguished company. But that Franklin trip changed me profoundly, as I believe wilderness experience changes everyone, because it puts us in our place, the human place, which our species inhabited for most of its evolutionary life, the place that shaped our psyches and made us who we are the place where nature is big and we are small. We have reversed this ratio only in the last couple of hundred years, an evolutionary nanosecond. The pace of our headlong rush from a wilderness existence through an agrarian life to urbanization is staggering and exponential. In the USA, in just 200 years, The percentage of people living in cities has jumped from less than 4% to 80%. By 2006, half the world's population lived in cities. Every week, 
A million more individuals join them there. The bodies and the minds we inhabit were designed for a very different world from the one we now occupy. As far as we know, no organism has ever been part of the experiment in evolutionary biology which we as a species are now undertaking, adapted for one life, yet living another. We are, in a way, already space travelers. We have left our home behind and ventured into an alien world. And we don't yet know what effects this sudden hurtle into strangeness will ultimately have on the human body, the human mind. As the American writer and activist Bill McKibben has observed, we have ended nature. There is no longer any true wilderness left on Earth. The carbon we have pumped into the atmosphere has ensured that the hand of humanity now reaches into even the most pristine alpine crevice or remnant virgin rainforest. In his 1989 book, The End of Nature, McKibben argued that Earth's altered climate gave the experience of being beside a river a different, lesser meaning. He wrote, Instead of a world where rain had an independent and mysterious existence, the rain had become a subset of human activity. The rain bore a brand. It was a steer, not a deer. Today, 22 years since that book was published, one of the easiest to grasp facts of climate change concerns its effect on rain. Warmer air simply holds more water vapor than cold. In dry places like much of Australia, this means increasing evaporation and drought. In moist places like America's New England, it means increasing downpours, more flooding. It means the tropics are expanding, pushing the dry subtropics further south, further north. As this happens, our rain-bearing westerlies are going to drop their water over open ocean rather than on our thirsty cities and farms. The Australian Water Services Association now tries to avoid the term drought, which signifies a temporary condition. What used to be drought, it seems, may be our new normal. Meanwhile, in New England, flooding on a new scale and increasing frequency gouges away roads, gashes up trees. Near where I live now, small, unprosperous communities ponder how they will find money to renew bridges and armour embankments against the next wild storm. And between us, between the suddenly wetter, suddenly drier lands, the great oceans creep higher, ever more corrosive, because of the burden of acidifying carbon. Our great reefs begin to dissolve. Our shellfish begin to weaken. The links of a food chain strain. And who amongst us is making ready in any meaningful way for the disasters that are coming? The Defence Departments of Britain and the United States which are already exploring and gaming out scenarios for the resources wars they expect to break out 
over scarce material. It may be Medicom and Benjamin Church once again, but on a global scale. The dispossessors this time will be defined by wealth, not ethnicity. If you doubt the extent of scarcity, consider this. In some places, municipal parks have begun removing public sculptures cast in metal and replacing them with plastic replicas because of increasing theft to feed the appetite for commodities in China and India. And beside the military, who else is making ready? The Newcastle Coal Infrastructure Group. In 2009, it raised by several meters the height of its massive new coal loader at the mouth of the Hunter River after a CSIRO report warned of predicted sea level rises. You'd laugh if you didn't need to weep. I honestly don't know what's more alarming, BHP and its associates' hard-headed pragmatism, or Rick Perry, the Texas governor and presidential candidate who denies climate change and advocates massively expanding the carbon economy, even as he prays for rain to end the epic Texas drought. Perry and his prayer remind me of the man in the old joke who constantly prays to God to let him win the lottery. After years of this, God, frustrated, finally replies, Mate, help me out here. Buy a ticket. <laughs> but few of us are buying tickets. Three years ago, I thought we had done so when President Obama took office. He made a speech that promised his inauguration would mark the day that the rise of the ocean starts to slow and the planet begins to heal. If only. Of all the disappointments of the past three years, highest on my personal list is Barack Obama's silence. His failure to use his gifts of eloquence to explain our predicament and the necessity for urgent action. Instead, Obama greenlights shells drilling in the Arctic, even as the toxins from BP's blown-out well swirl in the Gulf of Mexico. He delays enforcement of more stringent emission standards. He fails to act definitively against a tar sands pipeline that would run from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico, and that has been described as the fuse on a carbon bomb. The US president cites the present condition of the economy as the reason for these terrible decisions. But if indeed it is the economy stupid, then how stupid is it to ignore a looming crisis that threatens the shape and ultimately the survival of every economic activity we have? If we don't stop burning down our only home to provide a few more hours light to party by, there will not be an economy as we know it. Wall Street will be under several metres of water and we will be at war with each other for the scant fruits of our heat-blasted, storm-lashed harvests. When I was very young, I read John Wyndham's post-apocalypse novel, the chrysalids. In it, one of the characters keens for her devastated planet. 
What did they do here? What can they have done to create such a frightful place? There was the power of gods in the hands of children, we know. But were they mad children? All of them quite mad? In my own mind, I create a character like Wyndham's in the aftermath of the climate wars, eking out a mean existence in a harsh landscape and trying to explain to her kids the mass insanity that led them there. And you know, they flushed their toilets with drinking water. They made durable things, nice things like plastic plates and cups and they would use them only once and then throw them away. They thought it was normal for one person to drive around in a huge thing that they called an SUV. They used air conditioning when it wasn't even really that hot outside. I imagine her kids rolling their eyes and thinking to themselves, Mum always exaggerates. Nobody could ever have been that crazy. But how do you convince people here and now that these common behaviours are indeed crazy? Machiavelli observed that there is nothing more difficult nor more doubtful of success nor more dangerous to conduct than to make oneself a leader in introducing a new order of things. For the man who introduces it has for enemies all who do well out of the old order and has lukewarm supporters in all who will do well out of the new order, who do not put their trust in changes if they do not see them in actual practice. Or, as Yeats put it more succinctly, the best lack all conviction, the worst are full of passionate intensity. This is the current political predicament, most especially in the United States. There is no nationally effective Greens movement there. There is no energy policy, barely even a breath of serious discussion. Climate change is an issue in the national political conversation only among Fox News bloviators who use climate scientists as piñatas. In the U.S., without leadership, the potential for any kind of concerted national action is bleak. So in the land of rugged individuals, it falls to individuals to act. In a funny little life irony, having fought against a hydro scheme on the Franklin, I've just completed an engineering evaluation on how to use Benjamin Church's 1665 dam for mini hydro on the Tiascom. We are designing a fish ladder at the dam so that the herring can return after their long absence. We're revegetating some wetlands with native shrubs for wildlife habitat, planting fruit trees. Because we live in a rural place, we can buy our meat and vegetables from local farms where the animals are treated humanely and the land sustainably. I know it's not much. And I know that small as these actions are, I'm uncommonly fortunate to be able to afford to take them. And yes, I am well aware that I just undid a big piece of it by flying here to give this lecture. But even if I can't do everything, that's no excuse for doing nothing. I will do what I can. 
And at this inflection point in human existence, I believe that what we can do, we must do. Perhaps an answer to Yeats's despair lies in the words of the 18th century Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav. He said, If you believe it is possible to destroy, then believe it is possible to repair. The Jewish idea of tikkun olam, of each individual working to gather up and repair the shards of a fractured creation, is a metaphor that I think speaks eloquently to our present circumstance. Here in Australia, where the need for individuals to act is great, the potential for concerted national action is greater. The Australian Greens have put these issues at the front and centre of the national policy debate. We have a government willing to enact carbon price legislation and an opposition that at least accepts the broad outlines of the crisis and its causes. But is it the best we can do? Not, I think, by a long way. Australia can punch above its weight on this issue, and not only because we are the largest per capita carbon emitter. Our continent covers a vast landmass, and our territorial waters represent a significant and critical share of the world's oceans. Time and chance have made us custodians of a huge and significant piece of the planet. Our national temperament has created a peaceful and prosperous society here. We are, by any world yardstick, a rich society and a decent people. Right now, by some metrics, we are the richest people on the planet, rich enough to expend some of that capital and decent enough to know it is the right thing to do, the right time to act. What we do here matters. What we do here could be a model for the world. I find it depressing to hear politicians say that our sacrifices should be in line with what the United States does. That's a mighty low bar. Why should we align our ambitions with a nation that harbors justifiable fears of its own decline? that has created a national atmosphere increasingly hostile to science and reason, and that is locked in an arid political stasis. Please, let's not line up there. What's wrong with leading the way? Shouldn't we aspire to set the line? To inspire? To become an example to the world? a byword for what a visionary country can be and do. We've played that role before, after all. We gave the world the secret ballot, the Australian ballot, as it was called, that did so much to raise living standards and improve conditions for workers worldwide. We were a leader in extending to women the right to vote. We were barely a nation when we set the bar for bravery and sacrifice by common soldiers in foreign wars. We grew up out of racism and misogyny and homophobia to become a mostly tolerant, successfully multicultural society 
in a world where, for too many countries, that seemingly modest ambition remains painfully out of reach. We did these great things because we know we are in it together. It is our core value as Australians. And at this moment in history, our core value happens to be the raw, aching truth of the human predicament. It may also be the only belief that can save us as a species. A species that will continue to find comfort and delight in the companionship of animals, the miracle of birds, the colors of corals, and the majesty of forests. We are in it together on this blue spinning marble in the cold and silent void. And we must act on that belief if we are going to be able to continue to live a good life here in this beautiful and fragile country on this lovely planet, our only home. Thank you. I think they approved. <laughs> if you would like to ask a question, there are microphones either side down here. We'd, uh, we'd love you to do precisely that. So while you're gathering your thoughts, I might uh, just uh, um, chat to, to Geraldine, though. Uh, I heard a lovely, on my own Radio National Network the other day, I heard an artist who I can't remember who it was, asked who was her muse. And she said, look, it was the Australian landscape, was her muse, and had been a constant sucker and source of inspiration, which I thought was really lovely. And I, I thought in my own, you know, totally tiny, modest way, not, I think that's true for me. And the older I get, the more that's the case. And I always remember hearing Anne Deverson, the marvellous Anne Deverson, say that one of the uh, great privileges of growing older, which no one tells you, is your capacity for beauty increases, which I think is true. So I just wonder, with you so far, as you said, a reluctant expat, um, I wonder if, if that is true. Do you draw on memories? You sort of alluded to that, but, but then clearly you're very, very now embedded in your new home and its landscape. I got that very strong impression from your writing and from today. So I just wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, please. I think that it's true what you say, that the older you get, the more you um, appreciate beauty, but I would say nature also, because I know when I'm driving with the kids... They're not really that impressed by landscape. It seems mm. like your focal length increases as you get older. When you're a baby, your focal length is just for the human face in front of you. And then as you're a child, it's your parents and your family and your close friends. And when you're an adolescent, it's your peer group. And I think it, it is a, it's something that comes on with maturity, that ability to know the difference um, when you're suddenly in a magnificent mm -hmm. landscape. Mm 
And I guess I was lucky to be exposed to wilderness and nature exactly at the moment when I was ready to receive it. And, uh, you know, it was just a remarkable thing for me to learn that, my goodness, you didn't need to have a blaze trail to go on a bushwalk. You know, I would go off with these environmentalists who were campaigning to save the colo or um, whatever the environmental issue of the day was as the reporter with my notebook out and, you know, started off with the usual cynical journalist approach. And, you know, they'd just have some surveyor's maps and a compass and they were all set and, you know, you just go off into the bush, no trail, no nothing. And at first I was a little bit you know, do these guys really know what they're doing? And after a while, I just came to love it, this sense of tracklessness. And you get it so strongly in southwest Tasmania where you realize that very few human feet have fallen on this ground before you in some places. Um, and it is sustaining to me. I remember hearing also John Hyde, who was a, a former MP in Australia, he told a lovely story, which is sort of more on this line, of going into Harrods to buy something years ago. And he simply said to the young woman behind the counter, uh, thanks, mate, and she burst into tears. <laughs> and she, she said, I'm so homesick. She was an Australian, and she was so homesick. And she said, oh, I miss gum trees. I never th mm. ever thought I'd think of gum trees. I miss gum trees. I miss... I missed the accent and it was just a lovely little story. Now, do you? Oh, absolutely. And also, even when you aren't expecting it, I got off the plane yesterday morning and I just took a breath of the air as I stepped out of the terminal and I was just overwhelmed. There's just something about breathing your own air and it sounds like such an insane thing to say, but it is true. There's something about your own air that nourishes your lungs. And I was just so glad to be home. Look, um, just moving on, I just want to, you were talking about you were regretting the, the lack of wilderness. Um, and yet, a lot of scientists tell us that one of the greatest boons to preserving our place is the move to cities. And, and so it's a bit of an interesting dichotomy there, isn't it? That there's, there's this great sense of um, urbanisation, which I, th well, I, th I think you regret, but I'll test that, whether you, um, is actually going to give us a chance uh, to do some of the very preservation and conservation that you seem to prize. I, you know, I think cities are very efficient and it's where you find the super creatives that mass together and bounce ideas off and, you know, where the ideas that will save us hopefully will be generated. No, I'm not anti-cities. I'm anti-sticking the human boot into every last pristine place we have at this particular time in our history. And I remember, you know, when the battle for the Franklin River was won, I remember Bob Brown said, you know, you don't actually ever really win a battle to conserve something. You just win the right to fight for it again down the road. And that seems to be very much the case now. The United States gave us the idea of national parks as these wonderful places where humanity visits but does not remain. And now even that is up for grabs 
by the extreme right who just want human access to every square inch of the planet for short-term gain. And once you've changed it, it's gone forever. You lose conservation battles all the time. I suppose it could... Well, I wonder if that you dwell on that at all, uh, as well as condemning it. Is, is there a sense of fear involved there? Or is there a sense that it is the right of humans to prevail and preside? Um, I, mean, I, ask, I, I just ask because I grew up in Perth where... The, it was a very interesting experience, I realise, in reflection, where they reclaimed a lot of swampy land near, in the, right in front of the city to build the Narrows Bridge when I was a, a girl, when you were growing up in uh, the southern suburbs, I was growing up in, in Perth. And a man, a wonderful um, man called John Oldham, who was a great Australian um, conservationist but gardener, and he recreated in this area that was reclaimed, he created a beautiful garden where all these birds, and, and it was completely created, it was swampy nothingness, and he in effect created a form of Australian nature, which became and is still this wonderful haven for birds and wildlife, flora and fauna, which was sort of like a bit of magic, utterly created by humans. And people were saying at the time, oh, you know, it's a sort of, some people were saying it's a great... Um, arrogance to imagine that one could do this but he did it and it drew flora and fauna and it sort of had quite an impact on me that humans can devise wonder too you know yeah I'm not denying that I think you know I'm a gardener and I don't only plant native plants in my garden I think that there's a place for all kinds of things I wouldn't I'd be very loath to use the term swampy nothingness. <laughs> there probably were a great many very important probably. little things that aren't important to humans but are important to other small sea creatures that then feed the ones that we rely on. And when you start down that road, you know, mangrove swamps, we used mm. to think they were stinky, horrible True. things. Now True. we understand that they are absolutely the essential nurturing ground for fisheries. Mm. So, in a way, this interconnected web that we have, uh, and I'm just saying, if we've, if we've managed until now to keep something like the Arctic Wildlife Refuge, or if we have, um, just to put it in a more human context, we have a fantastic tourist re resource in Broome. So why would you put a, ma a major industrial gas hub right off of Cable Beach. Why would you do that? Why can't... There are many other places that you could choose to put it that would have less impact. Mm. And I just think that we need, at this point, to just consider everything more closely than we ever have before. And slower, by the sound of you, too. Yeah, no, some decisions are, are fairly obvious. We can, you know, we can make really good decisions. We've done it a number of times by putting the Olympic site... Uh, where it was located, that was a great chance to do a big clean-up of an industrial toxic wasteland. It's a beautiful resource for the city. So let's do that. Let's think more cleverly about how we develop and where we develop and leave some breathing space for nature. Yes, sir. Robin Williams, marvellous lecture. Geraldine, you live in Martha's Vineyard, which is a place where elites live and indeed elites take their holidays. Barack Obama went there with his family on holiday. But is it not possible 
that Rush Limbaugh is more in touch with the real America in the same way that Andrew Bolt is in touch with the real Australia? Well, I didn't know that you were such a depressing person. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I just want to just knock that Martha's Vineyard, Home of the Elites thing right off the table because, in fact... Martha's Vineyard is the poorest county in Massachusetts. Not many people know that. And yes, in the summer, a great many rich people take solace and delight in the beauty of the place. And when they start arriving in June and I see their cars full of, you know, the wonderful toys strapped to the roof and these bungee-corded extrusions of all the joyful things of a summer holiday, I think, good for them. I hope they have a wonderful time. And in September, when the last of them go, I think, great, thank God they're gone. Uh, Because then you get back to the community it is, which is an old fishing and farming community with a great many Brazilian immigrants um, and people who are doing it hard and really battling. And no, I don't think Rush Limbaugh is in touch with the real America. Um, I think he's in touch with a segment of people who find it very hard to accept that white male Protestants don't run things anymore. And I think that it's understandable that some people resist change, are frightened of change, and find the inclusive multicultural societies that we have now very threatening to them. But I also believe that most of us have embraced that change and feel very grateful for the way that our countries have been enriched by new thinking and new ways of looking at the world. Yes, sir. Um, just to follow up on uh, Graham Thorburn and Robin Williams' question and what you've just said, um, isn't there a valid fear that climate, uh, climate action is going to ossify current financial and economic inequities, both within countries and between countries? I think that it's better to look at it as an opportunity. Um, We could do things that would be wonderful for the climate but would also be joyful. It's not about, it's not all about austerity and going without and turning down, you know, the thermostat and turning off the lights. It's let's let's make every building in the city have a roof garden because that will increase the thermal efficiency of the building enormously and it'll also be a beautiful respite for people to walk out into. Let's, let's look at this as an opportunity to put in bike paths throughout the city. I used to love to ride my bike across Sydney until I had too many close calls with the traffic and I had to give it up. But if there were bike paths, I'm sure many of us would use them. And I think it's, it's always seen as this kind of joyless anti-prosperity thing. It's not. It's a pro-prosperity thing because if we, if we ignore it, and just don't take these steps that are available to us to take now, we really will have massive uh, economic disruption. So if you're a friend of business, then I think you also uh, have to be a friend of innovation and climate change action. I heard a lecture recently on nanotechnology, the capacity for new um, solar collectors in film that can be layered onto house roofs all over the world, the potential in um, 
solar collectors that could even be built into the fabric of highways. So you could actually be powering your city through the roads that you drive on. And, you know, these are magnificent things that are not science fiction. People are working on them. And we, I think, as an innovative and clever country, should have a really big piece of this. Every house in Australia could have a solar oven to do your hot pot in instead of a hot pot that's plugged into the wall. They work really well. The casseroles you can make are delicious. So let's not look at it as a negative. Let's look at the opportunities that it creates for us. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I think we're in for a treat. And I'd like you to thank Geraldine Brooks for her efforts on our behalf for the voyage. Geraldine Brooks, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist and renowned journalist, thank you very much for your company here on ABC Radio National and to you, the audience, here at the Eugene Goosens Hall in Sydney. And I do hope you'll join us next week on Big Ideas when we'll hear what it was like to come of age in the 1960s in suburban Sydney. As you know, a time and place that's often dismissed as culturally barren. Well, that was not Geraldine Brooks' experience. Her early years were steeped in music, politics and literature, as we'll hear next week. So do join me at five o'clock on ABC Radio National as we continue to enjoy the 2011 Boyer Lectures. And if you would like, in the meantime, to listen to this lecture again or make a comment about today's lecture, you can get in touch via the website at abc.net dot au slash rn slash boyer lectures. Thank you and goodbye.